0: All right, so this morning we are going to go over um, the problem of evil, uh, and we'll talk about the various ways in which the problem of evil presents itself, and um, spend a lot of time—this is—well, we'll we'll get there, so let's just start instead of me dancing around it. The problem of evil. Um, the problem manifests itself in different places, and, and really you have to know a lot about the situation that you're talking into to talk correctly into it, so— it manifests itself in different places personally um, we can talk about the grief of losing somebody or going through a time of great personal trial you lose your job or you're you're suffering with the disease yourself and and you can begin to wonder why it is that god allows these sorts of things to happen that is a much different issue than than an atheist who has no real trouble in his life who lives a fairly comfortable job who nevertheless says, like, there's a, there's a philosophical or a logistical problem with evil being present in the world and the conception of a good God. You can't handle both of those things the same. Um, when, when we deal with personal matters, well, people really need, this isn't an apologetic issue, people really just need to know that there's a, a kindness in God, a mercy of God. If um, you, you handle it in really a pastoral way, I would… Um, recommend the, this is one of my f- books that I read in my master's work. I can't remember what class it was for, um, but it's called The Severe Mercy. It's by Sheldon Van Auken. He uh, loses his wife. Um, shoot, I probably shouldn't have said that. It's kind of giving away the farm. He's going to lose his wife, but um, but that's okay. You're still going to be moved by it uh, now that you know that she's dead. Uh, um... And the Lord uses that to draw him to himself. And so there's this sense in which when we deal with those personal losses, dealing with like the, the logic of the problem of evil is not what we need to do. And so because of that, we're, we're honestly not going to be dealing with personal stuff much today. And that sort of issue, it's not really an apologetic thing. There are two other forms where it manifests itself. The most notable one is philosophic, and I also included a separate one which was problematic, which is probably not the best description of it. But the philosophical one is just like coldly using this idea of you say that a, a good, all-powerful God exists, but evil also exists in the world. So how do these two things interact? The problematic is more of, it's like a mixture of the philosophical and personal. These are people who don't actually suffer themselves, but they note very strongly the suffering in other people or in other places. They, they're the kinds of people who will… Um, will be doctors without borders, but they, they don't really believe in a God. They'll be the, the people who are um, working for Greenpeace. They, they realize that there's suffering and evil in the world, and they want to do stuff to fix it. And they'll say things like, you know, why is it that we can recognize evil in the world, and we work to eliminate that evil in the world, while well, God, who has all of this power, sits on the side and doesn't seem to be doing a lick of anything, okay? Um, they have much more passion in their particular thing than the philosophical ones do, um, and we'll kind of deal with how to, how to answer their issues. As we go through, we'll, we'll kind of hit on that, but the main thing that we're going to be looking at is the philosophical one. Um, and I, I… so… I apologize for that. We'll talk about why that is, but it's going to be more philosophical today than it otherwise would be, but very biblical, so hopefully it, it works. Um, But then we also need to talk about how it manifests itself. Um, While it could be personal, it could be philosophical, it typically takes on two different forms, moral and natural. So moral evil is simply, I'm going to murder you. That's a moral problem, and it's evil, and that is one of those issues. So we have all these, these examples throughout history of men and women doing horrible things to other men and women, why does that happen? Why doesn't God stop it? But then there's natural evil, which includes tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, droughts, all of those sort of natural things that happen, um, which, which really is a different issue in and of itself. And then there is something added on to this. Um, a gentleman named uh, Feinstein, I believe is his name, uh, who wrote a book, The Many Faces of Evil. Very helpful book. Um, he talks about the idea that there's a quantity and intensity and a gratuitousness to evil. So even if you you can rightly answer the sort of philosophical question of evil, the question then turns to, but why then does there have to be so much of it, right? Why is the quantity of evil so great? And then even if it's not just the quantity, the sheer amount of people being jerks in the world, why is it so intense at times? Why is it that Stalin is allowed to butcher 30 million of his own people. Why do things like World War II happen? And then the gratuitousness of it. It doesn't seem like it would be one thing if that pain and the suffering had a clear and evident end that was good, right? So there are plenty of situations that we can point toward where we see something that's really evil happening before our eyes, but we realize that in some small way, that helped people realize something, and then something better came out of it. So, one accidental death makes a law that saves the lives of millions of people, right? So, that, that's a tragic loss, but we can see the goodness of it. But that's not all suffering in the world. That's not all the evil in the world. A lot of it, we would look at and be like, it, there just doesn't seem to be anything good that came from it. So... Um, this is, this is kind of where the, the manifestation of it. But then we also then need to talk about what the problem actually is. And the best statement of the problem um, probably comes from David Hume, who we talked about last time. Uh, this is a philosopher in the 17th century, 17th, 18th century, um, where he said, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is impotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Why then is there evil? So the idea is God is all-powerful and he is good. If he is all-powerful and good, that means that he is willing to end evil, he's good, and he's powerful enough to end evil, he is omnipotent, but evil exists in the world. And so the way that this works is if evil exists in the world, then he is either not omnipotent or he is not all-good. Because if he were both of those things, evil wouldn't exist in the world. Okay? So, as we consider this particular problem, we've got um, a couple of things to go over. It is inherently philosophical and deeply philosophical. I will try to make it as, as not deeply philosophical as I can, but there's no not wading into that. There's a reason why it's inherently more philosophical than things like proofs for the resurrection and things like that. Um, one is that we are obviously dealing with morality. It is the problem of evil, and then that causes us to need to answer the question of what is evil? Why, how do we define evil? Why why do people who don't believe in God recognize evil? There is, as we will see, um, the problem of free will, and anytime you talk about free will, you're inherently talking about something that is very, very hard to describe other than in philosophical terms. Um, because we're dealing with the goodness of God and God's nature. It's philosophical. And then we're also going to have to talk about cause and agency, which, again, is philosophical. So part of this is my just apologizing about the apologetic of the problem of evil and that it's philosophical. It's deep. I apologize. You will, you will live through this if you don't fall asleep and hit your head and die on the pew in front of you. Um, so other answers to evil that people have given throughout time um, the first one consists of the idea that evil doesn't actually exist. And you can find this in Buddhist belief and in Scientological belief, um, that that they say that it's just a mirage. it's it's a it's a misperception that you have, that evil exists or that even pain exists. Buddhists are very high on this. Scientology believes in in like it's a moral issue, like you don't you're not pure enough before God, and so you perceive that that this exists. and She's, Mary Eddy was really messed up. Anyway, uh, you also get this with at least some moral relativists and atheists who are being honest, okay? So if they're honest, it's very, very hard for them to call what they see out in the world evil, right? Evolution is basically red in tooth and claw. It's based on murder and violence, and that's what's propelled our species forward, which is really odd because the whole, like, people who are hugging polar bears and stuff— uh, they don't want them to go extinct, but this is basically what natural selection is, right? They can't handle climate change, so get out, right? But that's not what they say. That's not what they believe. Uh, but they, they, have, they have a little bit of a problem saying that evil actually exists. So some of them would say that it just it doesn't, but for sake of argument. Um, others would come back and say that God is very limited. Um, this is actually the answer of something called open theism. Open theism is, thankfully, a theology that prop popped up in the mid-90s that hasn't actually taken hold anywhere. Um, it's it's an extension of Arminian theology that says that God, because the future hasn't happened, and because of that, God cannot, not that he is, they don't want to say that he's limited in knowledge because he knows everything that there is to know, but he cannot know the future because the future hasn't happened. So because he cannot know the future, he cannot control the future, and because he can't control the future, this is why bad things happen. Greg Boyd has this fantastic little um, illustration of talking to a woman who uh, married a man, went on in the mission field, and within two years of being married, he had committed adultery on her, and she was saying, yeah, I prayed about this, God gave me a clear sign, Um, and yet here I am, broken. And, and when he finally left her, devastated uh, by going in with his lover, um, she then found out she was pregnant with his child, which was like doubly bad. And Boyd's answer to her was basically, well, God really tried, but he can't stop the free actions of people. And he's like, hey, her faith was restored. And I was like, well, that I mean, faith is restored maybe in God being on her side, but Like, it doesn't seem like God can do much to prevent things from happening. Like, he he didn't even send an angel to, like, hurt the guy, right? Like, he could have done a number of, even outside of open theism, God still didn't act, like, in a way to prevent this from happening. So anyway, open theism is is one way that God is limited. Um, God tries, but he simply can't stop evil. So Hume says that he's impotent, and they frankly would say in some way, shape, or form, yeah, God is impotent. But this obviously is not our answer to evil. Our answer to evil is um, something that must address the question. We've got to clarify how it is that evil can exist and a good and omnipotent God can exist at the same time. But we're going we're gonna to answer the question, and I'm going to tell you that as soon as we answer the question, that is all you need to do, okay? So there is an answer to this question that is very, very simple, very, very easy, and you can give it, and you can stop there, and that can be the end of the ballgame, game. Okay? The problem is that that particular answer, when you unfold it, can become very unbiblical very quickly. And so, what we're going to address is how to unfold that answer so that more for our sake than for apologetics' sake, we'll know how to answer that question. Um, because we, we also want it to fit the biblical data. We, we really do want it to be a biblical answer. There's, there's a way of answering the philosophical question that will run aground if, we, if we're talking to somebody who has this problem and we're saying, hey, this is the answer, and they say, okay, and then they start reading the Bible, they're going to be like, you said that this was the answer, but the Bible doesn't talk like that's the answer. And, and so we want to be able to provide a, a much more sort of rich answer. And that means we need to address two basic concerns. One is the source or the responsibility for evil. Who is actually responsible for evil? the implication is that in some sense, God is responsible for evil. If evil exists in the world, God has created the entirety of the world. God has created evil in some way, shape, or form. He has at least allowed evil to be. If he has allowed evil to be, which we would not want to deny, we have to accept that. Evil doesn't exist on its own apart from God. Um, We need to address where the source of that evil is and therefore provide responsibility for evil. The second thing is, and this is important, and this is the part that I think most of the answers to evil run aground on, we also need to have a solution or an elimination of evil, because the Bible doesn't simply hold up that we are responsible for it, it gives us, in the end, a picture where evil doesn't exist anymore, and so we have to have an answer that works both to give us responsibility for evil and, secondly, to eliminate evil. All right, so the first part of our answer um, basically sounds like this. It is the free will defense. And that defense says in sum that God created us all with choice. And that choice necessitates the possibility of evil actions by everyone. Okay? So when he makes Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve have the ability to choose the good or to choose the bad. They have that choice. And, and you might say, an atheist might come back and say, yeah, but your story says that God placed that tree there, but there was always, there was always going to be something that could have elicited an evil response from them, right? There, there could have always been a way for them to engage in immoral behavior. That just happened to be sort of the, the way in which God allowed them to address it. But nevertheless, it basically says God created us with choice, and that is it. That's it. The argument is that this is either necessary in creation or simply better than the determinist alternative. And so, this is what we mean by determinism versus free will. Determinism basically says that your choices are determined, sort of advanced. They're they're determined ahead of time. So that it's like Greek literature when, when there's a, somebody goes to the fates and the fates say, hey, this is going to happen and then they go to elaborate measures to make sure that that thing doesn't happen, which those elaborate measures are the thing that brings around the, the thing that they were trying to avoid, right? Determinism says, like, um, there's a lot of actually atheists who are quite determinist because they would say it is your upbringing and your DNA that decides who you are. There's nothing outside of nature and DNA that decides who you are, and you can't get above that, you can't get around that, your, your choices are going to be determined by that. And we say that this particular free will that God has given us is either necessary in creation, which is a difficult concept that we're not going to deal with, or simply better than the determinist alternative. That is, that God saw that freedom was better than determinism. There's something about it that is just better, and we don't even have to prove that, okay? That's the point. We don't have to prove it. We just need to say, God thought that it was better that people could rebel against Him than that they were somehow robotic automaton that only did what was good, okay? And that also means that the possibility of evil is greater than. It is better to have the possibility of evil than it is the guarantee of that which is good, okay? So one of the, this has been the Christian answer for a very, very long time. Augustine said it this way, if man is a good, uh, you'll excuse the phrase, just meaning he he is somebody who has the ability to do good or evil. If man is a good and cannot rightly act unless he wills to do so, then he must have free will, without which he cannot act rightly. Both punishment and reward would also be unjust if man did not have a free will. Moreover, there needs to be justice both in punishment and in reward, since justice is one of the goods that are from God. Therefore, God must needs have given free will to man. In other words, if, if it is incumbent upon us to act rightly, there has to be a choice. If God is going to give us reward, and he is going to punish people, then there, there needs to be a freedom of will. And so he's just basically saying, there's, there's something called freedom of will. And, and the whole idea here is that this is our problem, it's not God's problem. God made us with freedom of will, which allows us to choose the good versus the evil, and we've chosen poorly, okay? Um, others have tried to poke holes in this argument um, throughout the ages. Um, Hume being one of them, um, but there's a recent work by Alvin Plantinga who is a um, philosopher from Notre Dame. Um, and by the way, it seems like this is pretty, pretty lay level stuff. I'm going to tell you that it gets deep very, very quickly and and beyond the scope of anything we're going to talk about here. This is a if you're terribly, terribly interested, I'm sure that that's a very good book. I've read other things by Alvin Plantinga, um, and he's very bright and cogent on everything, so he answers these questions fully, and he uses some uh, very philosophical language and some very plain language, and some of it's good, some of it's not. The, the basic idea is, after planning, wrote this, he has basically answered every possible problem that people have with the free will defense. So, this is the simple answer. If someone comes up to you and they've got, like, they've got this problem, if, if evil exists and, and God exists then these two things can't match. Your conception of God means that there must not be evil. Our simplest answer is God made us with free will. We chose to do evil, which then necessitated all the natural evils as well, right? So when you then talk about the two places where it comes up, moral evil and natural evil, it's then very easy to say, and natural evils were part of his his sort of chastisement for that moral evil. Like he couldn't just leave people in a state of Eden where they thought it was okay. So he also allowed things like earthquakes and droughts and stuff like that in order to chastise or punish um, that which is evil. There is no, there is, I think, no cogent response against those things. So if you want the most bare bones approach to this, that's your answer. That's your answer. So at one level, this can be our answer and we can leave it there but there's a problem, and that problem is that our answer to evil has indeed problems, if we just leave it there. We have to define what free will is, okay? So, please just bear with me for a bit. Most answers turn on the idea that choice cannot be causal, and what we mean by causal is your choice could always be otherwise if it's truly a free choice then you have the ability to go back if let's say you could get in a time machine and all things were equal you could go back and you could choose otherwise simply because your will said i'm going to choose otherwise you can always do it differently that's the idea um, and so if we look at like the stanford encyclopedia of Philosophy. Um, They say that free actions must be uncaused. There can't be anything that, anything outside of your own will and your own choice that makes you choose something, okay? You can't be pushed into it by some external force. You can't do that. Um, Or that they can be non-deterministically caused. That is, there can be something of a cause, but it can't determine your choice. In other words, what we get get down to is something like, if... You have a choice of either A or B, and this could be, you know, driving or walking, or riding the bus. It could be peanut butter and jelly or a chicken sandwich, right? There's nothing that restricts you from choosing either one, okay? It is only your choice that restricts you. It isn't some other factor. It's not fate. It's not God. It's not DNA. It's nothing else. It is simply your choice. That's it. That's all it means. It's not that you don't have reasons for wanting to walk. Maybe it's a nice day. Um, it's not that maybe you, you, you like peanut butter and jelly and you don't really care for chicken. Whatever the case might be, you can have reasons, but you're simply choosing. It's the choice itself that matters. You certainly could choose either. Okay? So, this is where we come back to the biblical thing. Our answer needs to provide two answers, both biblical. And the first one is that we have to have sort of a source for evil, that we can be responsible for evil and not God, and that there is an elimination of evil. When it comes to responsibility for evil, we pretty much have it, okay? So take for instance, without choice, without us having a choice, there is no responsibility for what we've done, okay? So if, if someone's brakes failed, um, and had an accident, would they be responsible for the accident? So if, if their brake line pops and they're driving at 25 miles an hour and they run into a house or a business or something like that, would we hold them responsible, like that, that they, they caused this accident? We might, if they just neglected for years their brakes, they knew that there was a problem, they didn't do anything about it, but let's assume that that's not the case. It was just a freak, freak, freak accident. We would say, even though they were behind the wheel, we would say, well, well no, you, you're not actually responsible. You didn't have a choice. You couldn't stop the car. If you can't stop the car, then there's no responsibility. Um, they, their will played no role. If, they're, if they can't choose, then they're not responsible. We hold people responsible for what they choose to do. Okay? So when it comes to the source of evil, um, we, we then can give a green check to that. we were saying, hey, our... The answer of of what we call libertarian free will, where where you just choose between one thing or the next, that that makes us responsible, not God. That means that we're clear there. The problem is it's not at all apparent how libertarian free will is going to eliminate evil, okay? And this, this is particularly irksome because, one, it leads us into an idea of Pelagianism, or it leads into the problem of permanence. Um, Pelagianism is a heresy from the third and fourth centuries where Pelagius, who is a bloke in England, um, said, what's going on is we just always have choice, and what we need to do is simply choose to follow God, and if we choose to follow God, we will be saved. If we don't choose to follow God, we won't be saved, And, and he had no room for any sort of movement of the Spirit. He had no room for God intervening at all. It was all our abilities. We were basically neutral human beings. But obviously in Romans, in the book of Romans, Paul doesn't talk like that. Um, We can choose either good or evil is what Pelagianism says and what free will libertarianism says. But Paul says that no one does good, not even one. Now, you would have to say that there's at least a 50-50 shot, right? Somebody out there is doing good. But he doesn't even say no one is good. He says no one does good. That means every time they're choosing between A and B, they're always choosing wrong. No one does good. No one does good. Not even one. You can't find anyone. And that, this is kind of the kicker to it as well, he's just so strong on this. You were slaves to sin. You were slaves to it. Like, there, there wasn't freedom there. I don't care how you want to translate the word slave here, whether it's slave or servant. There is no freedom there. There's no, like, I get to choose either to do what is right or to do what is wrong. He says, no, no, that's not how it works. You were slaves to sin. So it doesn't work for Romans, but it also doesn't work for the book of Revelation. In the end, evil and sin must be abolished. And so Revelation 21.4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This becomes pretty hard when we consider the fact that this is really difficult to be true by free will. If it was better for God to make us with free will than to be just deterministic, automated, robotish humans, in heaven we would expect that that would still attain. There's no reason why heaven should be worse than this place. So if heaven's better, we still have the choice in heaven of committing evil. If we still have the choice in heaven of committing evil, then there's still the problem of pain. There's still the problem of bad moral choice. There's still the problem of sin. None of it goes away. In other words, the best you can hope for is God to more quickly get rid of the evil people. I don't even know what you could hope for. Eventually, you're just all going to get picked off one by one, right? Because there's no elimination of it. You're still able to choose one or the other, okay? So when we get right down to it, we need both freedom so that we are responsibility for evil and restriction somehow so that we can be free from evil. Does this make sense to everybody, what we're getting at? Am I losing, folks? Probably. So... we need need to be responsible for it. We need some mechanism by which we can be responsible, but we also need that same mechanism to be such that God can intervene and He can stop us from being evil. Okay, The best answer to this, I think, because our answer to evil does have solutions, is to rethink what we mean by free will. Um, The best solution is to think that we have freedom, I'm going to call it freedom of desire. It's still freedom of choice, but it's It's distinct in that we always choose what our heart desires, okay? We always choose what our heart desires. In other words, if you choose between the chicken sandwich and the peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and you always choose peanut butter and jelly, it's not because you have an equal choice between the two. It's because you hate chicken or you love peanut butter. But either way, your heart is bent towards attaining peanut butter and not towards chicken. Right? You're always choosing what your heart desires. You're not, in other words, you're not free to choose against your heart. There's never a freedom of choice that way. You are restricted. You're not free to choose against your heart, but you always choose what your heart desires. Thus, you always choose what your heart desires, and I will put down most, and you never choose what you do not desire most. And this, by the way, covers even those situations where you are forced to do things. Like if you're working a job, and there's something that you hate doing, right? Your heart doesn't really desire that. But if, you're, if your employer says, listen, you either do the thing or you get fired. If you choose to do it, then you, your heart wanted the job more than it wanted not to do that thing. You're still choosing the thing that your heart desires most. If you decide this ain't worth it, man, and you just throw up your arms and quit then your heart desired to not do the thing more than it desired to have the job. But either way, when you're presented with that choice, your heart always, you always do, you always choose what your heart desires most. This is a really helpful thing because it gives us exactly what we want. It will give us a freedom um, because our heart is the one that's choosing. It's our responsibility. It's not God's. It is our heart that does it. Um, but it also allows God to restrain us in the end. And so the really good thing is this makes sense of the biblical data. So one of the best places to go for this kind of thing is to the book of Exodus, where we have Pharaoh and we have Moses, okay? And so Moses goes before Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And we know how the story runs. And the story is that Pharaoh has his heart hardened by God, and the question then becomes, does Pharaoh really have a choice by free will standards? That is, if it, is it just Pharaoh being able to say yes or no to this? Could he go back in time and redo it and have it come out differently? And the answer is, I think, pretty clear biblically that that, that was never going to happen. At no point in time was God going to allow Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go and serve the Lord in the wilderness for three days. That was never going to be an option, not until God displayed all of his power and all of his might. We know this because we have the Lord coming, and the Lord speaks to Moses, and he says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go the purpose of the hardening of the heart of pharaoh is so that the people cannot go he won't let the people go he refuses to let the people go and and what god here is saying is i'm going to intervene with that purpose in mind okay so there's no choice this is god's purpose god's purpose will be passed and the question then is if that's true and pharaoh doesn't have that sense of choice how can god hold him responsible And the answer, I think, comes in the form of a simple question. A simple question is very straightforward Did he do what he wanted to do? Did Pharaoh do the thing that he wanted to do? In what world could Pharaoh say, You forced me? And God can very easily look at him and say, I didn't force you to do anything. You chose to do it. Your heart longed for what is evil. And you chose to do what is evil. Now, if he chose to do what is evil, he's responsible. And I understand that this, this begs a deeper question of the nature of our hearts and the nature of our souls, and what it means for God to control those things, what it means for our nature to have fallen, and our hearts to kind of be be wrecked by the fall, and things like that, and even what it means for God to harden the heart of Pharaoh. Those are all really excellent questions and we can deal with those but it's not that's not really the time all we're trying to say is this seems to be the way in which the the work of the lord is done upon us and the way in which god deals with our freedom of choice in the world that he by the way he doesn't it's not like pharaoh wanted to be soft and god hardened his heart it's quite clear that pharaoh was hardening his heart and god was hardening his heart he, both of those things are happening god is allowing He's, he's basically, the Lord refuses to have mercy on Pharaoh is one of the ways that you can think about it. But nevertheless, he chooses it, therefore he is responsible for it. He gets to do exactly what he wants. There are other biblical passages that point us in this direction. The book of Ezekiel is really um, helpful for this or interesting for this. Uh, this kind of thing, this kind of idea comes up repeatedly in the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel 3.7, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, Ezekiel, for they are not willing to listen to me. Why are they not willing? What is the source of that not willingness? Because the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Their hearts are hard. Ezekiel 18:31. cast away from you all transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die? The issue that they have is their hearts are hard. They refuse to listen to the word of the Lord. They refuse to submit to the Lord. And therefore, they, they, they have this hardness of heart. They commit sin. They, they go after idols. Why do they do that? They know that they're going to die. This is the point. Why will you die? If you don't change, you're going to die. But they can't do it because they have the hearts that they have. Ezekiel twenty sixteen. They rejected my rules and did not walk in my statutes and profaned my Sabbath. This is the things that they did right? These are the things that they did. Why did they do that? For their heart went after their idols. It was because of the nature of their heart, where their loves truly were, that they did this. It wasn't an equal choice. God's not saying, they chose, I gave them commandments, I gave them rules, and then the idols were there, and they they decided not to follow me, but they decided to follow this. He's saying that's not, it's not just strictly choice, it's about desire. They desired to go after the idols, Therefore, the solution comes as early as Ezekiel 11 and as late as Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 11, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And so he's saying, listen, the the new heart that God gives allows you to choose to do the will of God. That's what he's saying. He's saying the problem is, is where your desires lie. If you get a new heart, then you will obey, right? You will choose to do what is right. Without the new heart, you can't choose to do what's right. Ezekiel 36, very famous passage, the beginning of the new covenant. Um, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Again, And we we note that there's two things. Your own desires change and there's a helper now provided for you that moves you in that direction, okay? Now, while we would say that God is going to provide you a new heart, we want to make the immediate connection that this is a new heart, but it doesn't happen fully or immediately in the minute, right? So the minute that you're converted— it doesn't mean that your whole world is slipped upside down and you see everything perfectly and your desires are all right and true. Um, the, way, the way to put this, given that Sharon just went through her surgery, you know, to, to do that small thing in her heart took four to six hours of work, okay? When God replaces our hearts, it takes a lifetime for that to sort of be activated. And even then, it doesn't ever get fully activated. There's this idea that we are... We're given a new heart. The spirit works in us, but it's a process. So though our outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. In 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Colossians 3, 9 and 10, you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge. Being renewed, not has been renewed, not is is already done, but it's in the process of being renewed uh, in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Passage in Galatians, um, incredibly important, and this brings up um, an issue about choice, which we'll get to in a second. For you were called the freedom brothers. So, again, that's freedom from sin, freedom from the things that had you enslaved before. But don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit— and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do, okay? So in other words, the Spirit recognizes that you have some of that old heart in you and that some of your desires aren't right. And so the Spirit actively works to tap those things down to fight against those so that you would want to do the right things, okay? This immediately brings up the question of, but isn't He telling us to choose this, right? Like he's telling us to choose the Spirit. So there must be a way in which, and this is true, our desires guide our choices, but our choices also affect our desires. And it's true. Our desires directly affect our choices. We choose because we love. The problem is that our choices also have this sort of feedback mechanism where they then affect our desires. So we know that people can get better. They see the goodness of the things that they do, and they like it, and they change. They have reformed lives. They, they used to be drug dealers, but then they, f- they decided that going to prison and getting beaten up isn't really the life for them, and so their choices like affected their desires, and they said, hey, I've gotta get out of this life. They, they haven't come to Christ, but they, they do recognize that their choices have changed their desires. The problem is that this feedback loop is heavily front-loaded, that desires always make you choose things, But your choices have a minimal amount of impact on what you desire. So there's no way for you to kind of climb out of the the valley that you've made for yourself, if that makes sense. But once we get to heaven, here's the deal. In heaven, when we have a pure heart, we will only make good choices, right? When we get to heaven, we will be pure and holy in all of our respects. Therefore, everything we desire, everything we long for, and because of that extension, everything that we do will be good, right, true, and pure. Because of that, our good choices will then reaffirm the pureness of our heart. We will see the goodness of those things. It will reaffirm those things to us, and it, will, it won't purify our heart, but it will at least reestablish our heart. I, that's not even the right word. Reaffirm our heart. It'll, it'll say, you did well, keep doing well. Right, like it's it's basically our choices loop back in the same feedback loop. So there's there's no falling in here, right? If your heart is pure and can only choose what is good, and that good can only provide good feedback to you, then there's there's no way to fall in here. There's no way for you to sort of crumble. There's no way for evil to pop up its head and to do the evil and wicked things that it's done before. Okay. Um, So that means that we have to talk about creation because obviously that's not how we were created. And I think that the answer, so that what happens in heaven of pure heart, of, I might even want to say a fully pure heart, is if that's the, if that scheme that we said, if fully pure heart, you only choose what is good, those choices then reaffirm your fully pure heart, what happened in creation. We weren't made with wrong hearts. And we hear in Genesis 131 that God made creation very good Um, there's a number of things that we might want to say about that. But one of the things we really want to say about that is that he looked out at creation and he saw that there was no evil. There was nothing wrong, nothing minimal, nothing that that was was morally objectionable. Everything was good, okay? That doesn't mean that there was a perfection yet. It doesn't mean that it was everything that he wanted it to be. And that's a really important bit as well. And we're going to come back to why that is here in a second. <clears throat> the question then is, couldn't God have done all of that, given us free choice in the way that we've talked about free choice, the choice of hearts, having us give, given us pure hearts from the very get-go, fully pure hearts, that would never, ever turn against Him? Couldn't He have done all of that without evil? <clears throat> and this is where we deal with quantity, intensity, and gratuitousness in the most general of ways. <clears throat> the point is... Um, that the good that God will bring about <clears throat> I'm sorry, is all the better because of the evil that we've suffered. And so we, we sing this, right? Um, Christ, the sure and steady anchor. We sing, um, we will cross the great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. And so we believe that the good that God brings out will be better because of the evil that has happened to us in our lives. And notice the things that we've gained because of sin. So I want to I wanna word that very precariously, but this is true. That For the Christian, the fall is better than it never happening. I, I just don't think that we are in a position to say otherwise. God has done something where evil exists to bring about that which is better, and we have gained We've gained a knowledge of God's goodness, mercy, and grace that Adam and Eve in their their innocent state could never have had. They just they couldn't know how good God was. They couldn't have known how evil evil was. They couldn't have known how merciful and gracious God was until they fell. We couldn't have understood truly what God's wrath and anger were like until we fell. We wouldn't know the treasure of nearness and belonging to God, not merely as creation, right? So they knew a nearness. They walked with him in the garden, but they were just his creatures then. We are adopted as brothers and sisters because in that scenario as well, Christ would never have become incarnate. We would always have known God through this grave distance of creator and creature, which is not how we know him now. That distance has been gapped, and it's gapped wholly because we sinned, and Christ redeemed us by becoming sin for us. So, all of this is lost. If, if God makes us without the possibility of evil, without the possibility of hearts that can go astray, we lose all of this, okay? By the way, past saying that we have freedom of will, you have to say none of this to anybody, Like If if you're doing apologetics, this is going to be something far too far. This is more for our own encouragement. When we think of evil, when we think of why God has done certain things, these are the things that ought to be going through our heads. Because this can be a thorny problem, again, for Christians, and part of apologetics is meant to encourage Christians. Through our sin, we have gained a knowledge of God that we just otherwise wouldn't have had. And we believe that God will ultimately bring good out of bad. So the gratuitousness of evil, the intensity of evil, all of that reaffirms to us that the sufferings of the present age are not worthy to be compared. We believe strongly that anything that seems gratuitous is not. God will use it for good. Anything that seems so intense that it can't possibly have any use for anything good, God will do that. And actually, we have the greatest example of that because the most evil thing that has ever been done the crucifixion of Jesus, was done, as Peter says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed Jesus by the hands of lawless men. What Peter is saying there is you're responsible for that evil, but God uses that tremendous evil, the greatest evil that's ever been committed, God uses that to redeem a people for his purpose and his pleasure. So God can quite obviously, there is nothing so evil that he cannot bring good. As a matter of fact, this is the best example because as far as we are concerned, this is the greatest evil that has ever been done and God brings out of the greatest evil, the greatest good that can ever be done. So anything that lies in the middle is not a problem for us. It's just, we're, we're okay. It doesn't matter how, how wrong or wicked it seems. And ultimately, we must believe that God will make it worth it, okay? Okay? Some, some things to think about as we go forward, and I'll have questions here in a second. I think we might even have time. Um, not all are going to buy it, and that's okay. Um, you, you don't need to... If people are really pressing you and they ask you about biblical data, you know, Randy made the comment, and we'll talk more about this in the future, the first... Not today. Oh, uh, <clears throat> I'm not throwing him under the bus. He made the right comment that... When we start all of this, one of the things we have to do is determine, like, time. We, we've got to think about who we're talking to and how much time we can spend. And in all honesty, when this comes up, you might be best suited just by saying, but God made us with choice, and we chose to do wrong. That, that's all you need to do. And, and that's, by the way, even, even through our little explanation that we had here, we're not saying anything different than that. We might be understanding it in a different way than the people that we're talking to but in the end result, we're still saying the same thing. Our hearts have chosen poorly, and therefore sin exists in the world. You don't need to go into all of the explanation because not everyone's going to buy it, and that's okay. Um, but for those who are, especially the, um, <clears throat> what I call the problematic people, um, one of the things that you can do is put it back on them, right? You, you want to look at these people who are afraid of sin Human evil ridding us of the glory of a polar bear or a sea otter or is going to destroy the world coming in the future, whatever the case might be, Um, or even, like, the evils of government and capitalism keeping people from food in Africa, whatever the case might be. If you think the world around you is evil, you know, what, what solution do you have for it? Like, without God what do you, what's your conception of evil? Why does evil exist? Do you deny that evil exists? It's doubtful that those people would, not an atheist might, but it's doubtful that people who are problematic, who are really fired up about it, and working for it, it's doubtful that they will think that evil exists. If it does, where does it come from, right? And then what's the solution? If it comes from human beings, what, what is there in, evol- we'll talk about evolution some, t- some bit next week, there is nothing in evolution that would ever describe a situation in which we will free ourselves from human evil. There's just nothing there. There's no reason for anyone to ever… They, and science fiction writers always talk like this, like we're going to evolve into a place, where we're going to get out of this like terrible lull that humanity has been in where things are ugly and then we'll, we'll start to learn better and we will, we will evolve into more enlightened creatures what a load of balarkey. There is nothing in evolution that even comes close to that. That is wishful thinking. And it's not even like cogent wishful thinking because things haven't gotten better. Like, they just haven't. Have you looked around at the past century? Things are not like rosy now compared to what they were. Um, so it's just, it's a very strange thing. So put it back on them. Um, ask them what their solution is. And, and say, you know, what's the solution? Is it Education? I don't I don't think that's going to work right it's not education it's not improving social conditions It's, it's none of that's going to work uh, likely cases that they have no good solutions for this so um, next week we're going to tackle others beliefs um, and and that will include talking about evolution and even in that in that we're going to talk about other world religions how they think through these kinds of things um, what their positions are on stuff but that will also include a lengthy description of how bad evolution is. Um, I don't know about lengthy, but it will include a discussion. And then the last week um, will just be lingering comments and, and questions about stuff. So any questions about today? I, I wanted to get all of that out. I'm sorry there weren't time for questions. We've got... I, I stopped exactly on time today, by the way. My, my watch just hit 30 and zero seconds. So thank you. We're, I'm done. I'm done. My heart desired that, yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah I think that that's what we, what we want to do is we want to keep the responsibility on ourselves because that's where the Bible does, and it doesn't mean that there's not outside forces at work, right so we always we always hold out or I've, I've said before that we're all victims and victimizers, right we We harm other people with our sin, but there are powers over us, you know Paul and, and we've we read second Corinthians four in second Corinthians four he also says like the, the God of this age has has blinded them. They can't respond to it, and He is part of that problem. Um, so we're not we we wouldn't want to skirt that issue, but we also, you know, I, I again you can you can kind of run down a rabbit trail there. Um, Augustine answered it better than anyone when he said, "Evil is a privation. It's not a thing. It's it's the lack of a thing. Um, it's 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 a it's a hole. So evil is just not doing that which is good. And when we say that there is an evil one, we just mean that he is more skilled than anyone else at not doing the thing that is good, and he ought to know better. So...